Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. I am coming to you right now from Singapore, where I am currently holed up in self-isolation. It's been at least four days since I've had a face-to-face interaction with another human being. Uh, It's a long story about how I got here, but essentially I needed to get out of the UK quickly, and it was my plan to end up in Vietnam with my girlfriend. Uh, She's from there, and her family lives there, and so I was going to wait out the storm there, but because of the moving target that was escaping Europe during the pandemic tipping point, I ended up here instead of Vietnam. So I'm hoping to get to Saigon after 14 days of self-isolation here. Um, But in the meantime, I'm in Singapore. Anyway, uh, so since all of this has gone down, it, uh, it feels really inappropriate to just go on producing content as usual. It just seems like nothing is really quite important enough in the face of coronavirus. Not that we can't talk about other things, but it just seems weird to have a conversation that's not framed in terms of the world historic events that are going on around us. So I've been thinking about what I want to do with the show, and I decided that I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to do a series of shorter conversations with other graduate students about how they're dealing with the circumstances and their reactions and strategies for making it through. I also like the idea of giving early career researchers a platform, albeit a modest one, to talk about their research. Conferences and other opportunities for a professional connection have been canceled, and it's just made it much harder for people to get the word out about their research. So I thought it might be a good use of this podcast to build some community around shared experiences during this dramatic time and to hear more about what our colleagues are up to. So uh, there's, there's probably no better person I could think of to kick off this series than my guest today, Jacqueline Siegel. She's a PhD student at Western Ontario, and she studies feminist identities uh, and their effect on people's self-perceptions, as well as how those identities affect the way a person attempts to wade through the mire of society. She's phenomenally interesting, equally at home in talking about her subject both on an analytical level as well as a personal one, and we get into both during this conversation. I, uh, I found her story very powerful, and I'm excited to share it with everyone. So you can follow her on Twitter. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter, uh, though I can guarantee you that it'll be a severely less rewarding experience to do so than following her. Uh, at any rate, that's enough of me. Here is Jacqueline Siegel. Okay, so wait, oh, so, so you are in Canada, but you're from America. Yes, I am um, a reluctant American citizen, but I have been... In- <laughs> you tried to escape, but they might drag you back. I keep saying it's the new American dream, which is fleeing the country and moving to Canada. But yeah, it, uh, yeah, I love it. I've been here since 2017, and it has just been... Uh, for the most part, a really wonderful experience. The Canadians are doing a lot of stuff right. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, Canada's hot right now. They've been hot for, for a few years. They've got Justin Trudeau. They've got Drake. They've got they've got Justin Bieber. Uh, and depending on which year you're at, you know, that they've got a lot going for them. I am uh, I'm a big fan. They might keep me here. Well, right now I can't leave. So uh... they're for sure going to keep you. Yeah, they have no choice. Wait. Wait, okay, so but where were you where were you from in the US? Um, so I grew up in New Jersey and I went to school right outside of Philadelphia. 
So that yeah. area. And then did you do undergraduate in the U.S. as well? Yeah, I did my undergrad and my master's both at Villanova. Um, okay, nice. Where Where are you located? Um, so I also escaped the United States. I live in England. Uh, I go to school at Oxford. Oh, ooh, fancy. Yeah, I'm in my first year of my PhD there. How are you liking it? I really like it. I mean, so it's, uh, it's, it's, England is a delightful place to be in, in many ways. Um, and I really, I really enjoy being there. Um, and uh, it's fun to do something different. It's fun to be out there in the world and seeing a different thing than what you're used to. So I really enjoy it. That's great. And I, so how, may I ask, how have you managed to like start up a podcast whilst pursuing your PhD? Right. So um, uh, very easily distracted, I think, is the main answer to the question. Um, but other than that, uh, it's, it was something that I thought about before I started my PhD. And so I got some momentum going before I even sort of made it to graduate school. And I have, basically, I optimized the loop to um, make it relatively efficient to, to do. So it doesn't, it doesn't, because of the nature of the podcast, it doesn't take too long to do the interview prep or the interviews or the editing or to put it out there. Um, so it's really just an opportunity for me to reach out and talk to people because I like talking to people and um, you know get to know uh, uh, different people who you know usually are sort of higher up you know psychologists in the field and that sort of stuff. But uh, at this point, uh, me, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, the most eminent researchers that I could find. Clearly, um, yeah, absolutely. But no, so I guess I was I was thinking that. You know, so right now, it's I, I'm finding it very difficult to talk about or think about anything that's not corona-related because it doesn't feel important in the face of that. It feels inappropriate to be pretending like, okay, here's just like the normal thing that I would normally be talking about, and I'm going to pretend like that's the most important thing that I have to think about right now. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I, was, I guess I was trying to think like, okay, so what do I want to do? And... I guess uh, this this podcast is in large part geared towards early research psychologists, and so I guess I was thinking two things. One, you know, give a sort of platform to to sort of commiserate about, um, you know, how difficult it is to move forward with 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 stuff like your study that you're working on right now, and and sort of stay focused and uh, you know stay mentally healthy and all sort of stuff in the face of a worldwide pandemic. And then also, you know, have an opportunity to talk about, uh, you know, your research just to, so, you know, you and other people who I'll talk to have an opportunity to sort of uh, say, here's what I'm working on. Maybe some other people will hear that. And I think that'll be a good opportunity, um, given that so many conferences and other opportunities to connect have been canceled. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think what you're doing is great. I was truly, I was delighted when I received your email last night. I was, uh, it was just about bedtime and I, you know, it, it's been hard. It's been really hard the last couple of days in particular, getting so much bad news. So to have a, a positive email uh, sent to me, I, it really brightened my whole night. I'm glad to hear that. Um, I remember my, you know, what got me started on thinking about this whole podcast thing was that I had some random person I didn't know uh, email me like, hey, do you want to talk on my podcast? Uh, and I'm like, well, sure, I guess. And then... It ended up being this very enjoyable, rewarding experience, um, 
and I was like, well, that was really fun. Why don't I just keep doing that uh, and then on my own terms? So I, I, I hope that even though it's an ex- exceedingly modest opportunity that uh, you, know, you or other people who listen to it can be inspired to pursue whatever other things you maybe have um, you know, thought about uh, doing in sort of uh, the extracurricular domain in addition to whatever else you got going on. So, but uh, one of the things, yeah, one of the things we talked about was gratitude, um, which is something that I am constantly trying to get better at, and um, I think is especially important to, to keep in mind during these times. So I guess, yeah, I'm wondering, uh, when, in your moments where you're able to get a sort of higher, uh, you know, sort of reach that plane of, of being grateful for things, what, what, what do you find helps you get there? Yeah, it feels like we have three options. The first of which is to completely break down um, and not really know how to move forward in any way, in any um, productive way. Um, The second is to laugh our way through it. However, um, it's becoming uh, increasingly harder to find things to laugh about Still trying, still trying really, really hard to find things to laugh about. Um, But the third is to just sit, wait, and find ways to, find little ways to be happy amid all of it. And so something that I've really been trying to do each night, I'm keeping a coronavirus diary, but is to look back on the events of the day and think about who reached out to me today? What are the little things that made me happy today, even if they aren't things that I'm necessarily proud of? What are the moments that made me laugh? Who is it that's reaching out to me in a way that is really going above and beyond what they need to be doing? And I'm finding that in my little coronavirus diary, there's a lot of negativity. I'm really anxious about the situation. I'm super nervous. The border just closed between Canada and the United States, and I can't get home to my family. I am quite literally indefinitely trapped in Canada while there's a pandemic going on, and I have, you know, ill and elderly family members. But at the same time, juxtaposed against that, I have a list of, you know, podcast episodes that made me laugh, SNL skits that, you know, made me chuckle a list of family members who went above and beyond and not just text but sent me photos videos um my brother has called me like three times today and amid all of the horror there's so much beauty and i think it's really important to focus on that beauty yeah absolutely i mean i i think that's totally dead on i guess you know so uh, like you're talking about with your brother, I have talked to my mom like three times a day, every day since this whole thing started. And that uh, it's it. I usually talk to her more like you know, uh, maybe two times a week or something like that on a normal basis. And so uh, I found that it's 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 actually a really incredible opportunity to connect with people who you wouldn't otherwise connect with on a regular basis, but care about in a really, really deep way, right? So I have called so many people that I have such a, a long-standing uh, deep relationship with, but just simply don't take the time out of my day to call and connect. Um, and so having the opportunity to both be stuck in the same place, to know that person, because everyone, everyone, when you call them, they, they pick up immediately, right? Because they don't have anything else to do. 
uh, or they're, 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 they're available at least. Uh, and I think that's actually a really profound opportunity for social connection amidst all of the social dis- distancing. I couldn't agree more. Um, I've been on both sides of the gratitude uh, sort of, let me rephrase that. I have both reached out to people and people have reached out to me to try to find support amid all of this. And I'm not sure if it feels more rewarding to get support or to give support, but I have, I mean, it's been somewhat overwhelming, the cathexis of love and support that has come out of all of this. And, you know, most of my friends, most of my family are still back in the States. And perhaps it's because I have been quite vocal about my apprehension and my panic really about everything that's happening but I feel like I can't answer the messages quickly enough they're coming in from you know Twitter Facebook emails phone calls uh you know DMs Slack WhatsApp I feel like there's just been so much love and I I am just really moved by all of it and another aspect of gratitude that we haven't even discussed yet is really just reflecting on how, regardless of how extreme and terrifying the situation is, we are in a much better position than many other people are. At least I'm in a position where I know I have have a functioning healthcare system where I live right now, and I couldn't say that if I were back in the States. Um, I can, if I am to get sick, I am in a body that is strong enough to fight the virus. You know, it. I can stay in a home, uh, and I don't have to worry about sleeping on the streets and, um, you know, encountering the virus inadvertently. We have a lot to really be grateful for in this situation, and focusing on the positives. You know, it doesn't erase the problem. It doesn't change anything, but it can help feel a little bit better. Absolutely. And, you know, another thing is that um, sort of at maybe uh, one level, one step down of importance from those things that you named is that uh, academia, for the most part, gives you a good opportunity to work at home. Uh, As you sort of quipped earlier in one of your tweets, you've been practicing a form of self-isolation for a very long time now as a graduate student. And uh, so there's there's aspects of, of it that you're adapted to. But but then in addition to that, um, the fact that our, you know, sort of existence, our livelihood, what we do with ourselves is, is about uh, engaging in ideas and reading and thinking and studying things and figuring out topics that we care about, that, even though that is sort of taking a, a back seat to the sort of uh, public health crisis that we're, that we're facing right now, the global pa- pandemic. But um, that fact still remains that that's what we do and I think that should be a constant source of, of gratitude for people who uh, are in academia and uh, you know, positions as, as graduate students, that sort of stuff, is that we get to read about cool shit on a daily basis. And that's like what we do. And then we, we try and further, we identify interesting uh, you know, sort of gaps in that knowledge and try and further it through our own studies. It's, 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 it, there's never a day that goes by that I, that I try not to... Um, I, I try to spend at least some, some portion of every day reflecting on the fact that I have the opportunity to do that 
and even amidst the craziness of the world, I guess maybe I'm, I'm especially thankful for that right now. It's true. It really is a privilege. Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess I, I have one question for you, which is, um, is there anything maybe that you're uh, especially uh, anxious about, which people, which you have an idea of how people could support you? Maybe with an eye towards, you know, assuming that other people have a similar kind of anxiety and, and could be supported in a similar way. Does anything come to mind for that? Um, yes. Uh, so I am a person with a, with a mental health condition. I have really high anxiety and generalized anxiety disorder. Um, I'm in recovery from an eating disorder. I am, uh, I deal with sensitive uh, mental health and I'm aware of that. And and you can say that, like, I'm very open about it. But being in isolation, and not just sort of quasi-isolation, I live in an apartment by myself, in a country by myself, in an apartment building that has 12 units, and most people have gone home to their families. I am in sort of solitary confinement. So the risk of losing connection is very real. And something that I cannot even begin to describe how much comfort I have found in is Twitter, really. It's how supportive people, I mean, it's not random people on the internet, but people I've never even met have reached out to me, not just sort of in a, in a half-assed way. People are really you know, writing extensively, trying to find me connections here. Um, so to anyone listening, if you're not involved with the academic Twitter community, people really care. Um, there is an intense and extensive support network available to you on there. And I really, really encourage everybody to get involved. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really cool point. Yeah, and uh, you certainly uh, have exemplified that standard of, of support and connection, at least uh, for my outside view, you, you you have a very encouraging presence, and you certainly uh, seem to make the Twitter world a better place by being on there. So thank you for that and for the support that you give to other people through that. I think that's really cool to see. Well, thanks. Um, you know, I, I have not had positive experiences in academia. I have dealt with a lot of BS and a lot of backlash, being, being both an openly feminist person who studies feminism, it uh, doesn't make you a lot of friends in the academy. So I have found that reaching out to other people and supporting other people has allowed me to find the right kind of people that are willing to support me. So I'm, I'm glad that I have a somewhat encouraging presence. It's <laughs> when I try to explain to my family what I do on Twitter, they're like, we know, Jacqueline, you don't know how to shut your mouth and you never know when to stop being sarcastic. I was like, I know, the people <laughs> on Twitter love it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's really cool to see. I think uh, what I like about it is that it's really cool to see someone who can express themselves uh, in a really sort of idiosyncratic and uh, authentic way in what's so often a contrived medium, right? It's, 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 it's difficult to... If you look at sort of the general way people engage with Twitter, it's difficult to make Twitter compelling without being sort of snarky, right? And that's where a lot of the sort of problems with 
Twitter as a medium of expression come in. And it is cool to see someone who is able to circumvent that, um, or, or at least do it in a way that, that seems authentic and positive and, and that sort of stuff. And certainly, um, uh, it's, 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 it's cool to see someone attain that in any medium, um, but certainly on Twitter, I think it's, it's kind of especially hard to do. So it's very cool. Thanks. I really hope it doesn't end up biting me in the ass when I start applying for jobs next year. But, um, but for now, it's fun. You know, I, I kind of subs- subscribe to the idea that there's no bad press in this case. Um, I guess maybe on Twitter there is some bad press if you if you get a huge amount of backlash. And, you know, there's been instances of people getting fired recently. But I do think that engaging with people, getting your name out there, uh, letting people know what you stand for, whether or not that's something they, you know, appreciate... Um, uh, the fact that you stand for something, I think, is is that is is worth worth knowing, having other people know, and, and sort of uh, putting yourself out there so other people can see that. And I and I don't see that there is any case in which, on the whole, that's not going to be an overall positive thing. You know. Yeah, and something that I try to remind myself is that this is who and what I am, and if people don't like it, that's not going to be a university or environment in which I will thrive. So hopefully, Absolutely. I mean, you know, we don't get our pick with where we end up, but hopefully uh, the right kind of people will see what it is that I'm doing and will recognize that that's a presence that they want at their university and please hire me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I get my sense uh, of that is that I do think that that sort of stuff is changing um, for, for the positive. I think, I think up until now, any sort of um, public facing part of your uh you know sort of image as a scientist has been viewed somewhat negatively in psychology but certainly within the last 10 years i i feel like there's been a, a shift to um you know like okay like let's tell the other humans about what we're doing not just the specialist you know phd psychologist but like let's try and talk about this stuff in a way that is valuable to the general population and um uh, I think that sort of culture has changed. That was probably frowned upon, you know, 15 years ago. And then in the last 10 years has, has become an increasingly valued part of people's contribution as scientists. And I think these sort of um, making the community a better place are also going to become more valuable um, over the next, uh, you know, sort of several years and maybe decade and sort of the long cultural shift terms. But uh, I, I view that that's going to be perceived as more and more uh, important in assessing someone's uh, ap- application to a tenure track position and, and what they bring holistically to a university. So I, I, I'm overall optimistic about how that's going to look. And I think people like yourself are going to be situated quite nicely um, as that uh, you know, sort of becomes more and more appreci- appreciated within the culture. Well, I appreciate you saying that, and I sincerely hope that others feel the same. <laughs> Um, so I have a question. What uh, what uh, interesting things, or what, what have you been reading lately, recently? So a book that I recently read, I think it's important to qualify that I only read nonfiction, and for the most part I only read feminist-related work um, when I'm not reading psych journal articles. However, given that my research is on feminism, I'm mostly reading about feminism. But uh, a non-academic book that I recently read was Know My Name by Chanel Miller, um, who is okay. 
Are you familiar with her? No, no, I'm not. Interesting. You should learn her name. Um, however, she is a she survived an attack by Brock Turner, the swimmer at Stanford University. Oh wow. Yeah, for years and years she was referred to only as Emily Doe. Um, you know, and it was extremely dehumanizing to her. The way that people wrote about her, the way people talked about her was like she wasn't there. So in this book, she reclaims her experience uh, and she gives voice to something that rendered her voiceless for so long. And it's really, it's incredibly moving, so powerful and really points to so many flaws and injustices within the way that we handle sexual assault cases. And I read it over, um, I guess it was a few weeks ago now, but I was voracious for it. I couldn't put it down. I really, I sat down in the morning with it and by the evening I had just finished the whole thing and I was just sobbing for most of the day. So that's a good one. That that sounds like such an incredible story. Yeah, no, that, sound, that sounds amazing. Um, yeah, so what, I guess what, um, so yeah, you've, you've obviously the story, the narrative, and the, the human experience element of that has uh, was profoundly moving in the moment. Is there is there something that sort of stuck out to you that's sort of like, huh, this is really... So here's what happened. Here's what went wrong. Obviously, there are a lot of things that went wrong. And then is there anything that sort of has stuck with you in terms of like, well, this, this seems to be like we need... This is the thing we need to address here. Um, is there anything that sort of stuck with you like that? I'm not sure how to discuss this without making it extremely complicated. Uh, because, right, right. Yeah, the legal system does not work for women when it comes to reporting sexual assault and the way that we persecute um, sexual assailants. So I will rephrase. The, um, the legal system doesn't work for those who are victimized by sexual assault, regardless of their gender. And men and non-binary folks have an even harder time. However, women are the majority of people who report sexual assault, regardless of the fact that it's massively underreported. But we know that the system doesn't work for women. We know there's various steps along the way where it doesn't work for women. And what was really so powerful about the book was just simply that in a system that frequently dehumanizes women every step of the way, she reclaims her humanity in so many ways. And in the book in particular, she points to all of these various experiences of sexual objectification that she dealt with on a daily basis that weren't physical assault, that weren't sexual assault, but really were so harassing that in one moment she just screamed uh, about how frequent and how intense her experiences of sexual harassment were. So it's just little things like that that really stuck out about it. There's not like a quick fix to the way that we handle rape cases it's really broken and it needs a massive overhaul and it the popularity of the book may perhaps end up doing some good but Chanel Miller's voice is absolutely incredible she's a phenomenal writer so it's it's just all good it's it's a lot it's intense certainly not like uplifting uh but it's powerful in a way that perhaps is more meaningful than you know a, a quick laugh yeah, no, I think that, uh, you know, like you said, um, sort of, I think your point number two of how to deal with um, sort of 
staying sane and in the face of coronavirus was to find ways to to laugh, which has become increasingly difficult. But uh, certainly, uh, I think another way is to, or is maybe sort of an opposite side of that coin, is is also to really embrace the opportunity to engage with the the deepest and and, and sort of most um, intense parts of the the human experience, right? Because right right now, what we're going through is a world historical event and has tons of profound consequences. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, engaging with that aspect of it and really try and connect with that um, in, in whichever way sort of makes sense to you, whether it's through literature or movies or talking to other people and that sort of stuff. And then uh, also channeling that into these problems that once all this has passed, they're still going to be there. They're still going to be important. And um, uh, we're going to have to get back to the daily grind of, um, you know, sort of trying to address those, which I don't think you have left the daily grind of trying to address those. It sounds like you've still been working on your research. So maybe could you tell me a little bit about um, maybe any recent projects that uh, you've done that you'd like to share or what you're working on now? So whatever, whatever sound, whatever would, uh, you know, you'd sort of be comfortable talking about. Yes, I'm so excited about the opportunity to talk about all the exciting stuff that's going on. Um, as they say, the work of feminism is never done. Feminism right. is the, uh, the central theme throughout all of my research. But in general, I'm interested in how it is that the cultural treatment of women influence is their, well, let me rephrase. I'm interested in how the way that we treat people based on their gender influences their experiences of the world and what happens to people and their experiences when they choose to challenge those systems and structures. So my dissertation research as a program of research focuses on what feminist identity means to people and what it means when people call themselves feminists. What are the various complications of that? What does that look like? What do people behave like when they call themselves feminists? What are the backlash experiences of people who identify as feminists? So that's one part. Um, it, the first study was um, in women and non-binary folks. I'm presently running a study about femi about uh, men who identify as feminists, which has been so interesting, so enlightening. These men are really wonderful, such incredible allies, and feminism is is really fortunate to have them um, because they're they're making serious changes because men are listening to them. It's, it's amazing. I love this study. Um, it's, that one's that one's the big one. That was what I was doing right before I got um, on the line with you. I was in, I was uh, doing an interview for that. So that's a big one. And uh, I'm developing a new scale of feminist identity that's multidimensional to capture various different aspects of people's feminist identities. So there's like, you know, a centrality aspect and there's an activism aspect. So that's cool. Um, that's that's the big dissertation stuff. That's the stuff that my supervisor constantly reminds me that I need to be working on. Uh, but we also just developed and validated two additional psychological instruments, the first of which is a measure of personal safety anxiety. Um, and personal safety in the context of sexual objectification is something that I feel very passionately about. Um, not about safety, but that we need to talk more about it. And uh, also, we developed I guess we didn't do the developing. The development had already happened. However, we did the validation of a measure of phenomenological body shame and how it is that women experience shame in an embodied way. 
So those have been the big projects. Um, there's a couple of other things going on. I'm uh, what, what is it? I am a, a guest AE, so I'm an, a, a guest editor of Psychology of Women Quarterly uh, for an upcoming issue about feminism and open science and how it is that the two collide and work together and how it is that we can reimagine open science principles to make them work within a feminist framework. And that's been so exciting, particularly as a graduate student to have such an incredible opportunity has really been just unbelievable, really. I can't believe that I've had these opportunities afforded to me and um, talking, you know, coming back full circle, I'm so grateful for, for all of these opportunities and to have the opportunity to study all of these topics that I feel so passionately about. So yeah, so that's what I've been up to. Well, that's great. Um, I'm, I'm glad to hear uh, that you're still able to keep the wheel turn even with all the, the craziness going on. Um, though uh, I hope if at any point you find that uh, to be difficult that you won't be too hard on yourself because um, I think it's, it's hard to maintain productivity during these times but um, that sounds like really incredible research so what, what I guess what are the what are the things that you're currently looking at in men yeah so what what I'm doing with the male feminist study is I'm taking an inductive grounded theory approach to understanding men's feminist identity development and their experiences as male feminists and their apprehensions of, of being men who identify as feminists. It's been really interesting to try to trace people's narrative journeys of feminist identity development to see where they started and how people's different social locations influence the way that they first thought about feminism and first thought about gender roles and then how it is that um, they came to feel comfortable calling themselves feminists, the experiences that led up to that. I'm also looking at the role of um, social support and how other men and particularly men who identify as feminists have influenced these, these men's feminist identity development and also how safe spaces can uh, allow for men to explore their feminist identities. Um, but all of this is still in flux, and that's how grounded theory works, is that the coding is continually changed and updated to reflect uh, different men's experiences. And I've had a variety of different experiences shared with me um, through these interviews, but I'm looking forward to revising more as I learn more about different men's experiences. It's all been wonderful. It's really just moving really i've loved every so, minute of it so i guess i have a, a, a just sort of trying to introspect on my own personal experience here uh, i guess i i have a question which is that so i guess my concern uh as a potential male feminist is that philosophically uh i am totally on board however i'm not confident that like pragmatically that I do enough to merit the the sort of that that label. So I mean, I guess my my concern is that like if I were to strongly uh, you know sort of really embrace that label, um, I don't maybe I don't do enough to to earn it. There would actually be um, 
you know, sort of just empty words in a sense. Not not that I actively uh, oppose it or anything like that, but I, I just feel like I, I would I would want to do more before really um, openly uh, taking that label. Do you think? I mean, what do you? Is is that sort of something that you see in people's uh, narratives that you've looked at so far? Or how, how do people make sense of that? Yeah, so there's a really simple solution to what it is that you're explaining, and it's to simply do more for feminism. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But uh, I mean... Well, that, that, that certainly occurred to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you're not the first person to express that to me. Uh, someone said to me in an interview last night or two nights ago that they felt like it wasn't something that they could say for themselves, but it was something that other people would have to place on them. Um, oh, that's interesting. Be like, oh, the, like someone, someone saying, oh, okay, this person, this this guy over here, he's a real feminist. He's he's doing shit, you know. He said, I feel like I need to earn it, and I was like, okay, that's absolutely fair, and that's totally fine, and that makes perfect sense. Um, that's not the experience of every man, and what I'm finding is that men who have other male feminist allies are more likely to, I mean, this is not, I'm not testing statistical significance or anything, this is all qualitative, but the men who are engaging in collective action, who are going to protests, who are signing petitions, who are advocating for feminist principles, are the ones who have a support system of other men who identify as feminists. Oh, interesting. So it's a, it's a function of the other men in your life, um, rather than necessarily being surrounded by female feminists. Well. A lot of people have the same apprehension that you voiced, where it's like, well, I don't, I don't know if I'm a feminist. It's a lot easier for a woman yeah. to call herself a feminist. Um, but you're much more likely to do something if the people around you are doing it. Um, right. And men were like, well, I, I didn't feel comfortable, you know, making a picket sign and going to a march by myself. But like when it was me and my buddy... And I knew that I was going to have support when I was there, and I knew that I wasn't going to be the only one in the room, then I was more than happy to do it because I support these principles to begin with. And um, I see ally support as invaluable to, uh, to achieving any sort of gender equality, but really any social movement needs the support of allies. So... I'm, I'm all here for male feminists. In the event that even you or really any other man wants to learn about feminism, I'm really happy to talk about it with people. Um, when people come to me uh, asking me questions about feminism, and of course, like, in good faith, they're not just sort of trying to, you know, push my buttons about it. I'm so happy to talk about it because, obviously, I have a stake in the game. But uh, what I'm finding in these interviews is that these men who identify as feminists, these men who are actively helping women, they're s they feel very fulfilled for having leveraged their privilege in that way. And, um, I, and so being a feminist benefits men, but also reducing the burden on men to, you know, be the sole providers, be strong, burly, um, you know, non-emotional, completely stoic, that that's a burden on men too. And so it's, I think feminism is good for everybody. Um, and these men seem to agree. Okay, so um, here's something I'm really interested to know about and, and uh, it may get into personal stuff, so feel free to sidestep it. But lots of people identify as feminists, lots of people do stuff in service of feminism. 
but you seem to have gone really deep into that and to some to some degree dedicated your life to to uh to feminism so how how did you initially come to be so passionate about this movement and and what was what were the experiences in your own life that sort of got you started thinking about these problems and, and realizing that yeah, you wanted to go further them through this you know sort of psychological study and and, and, and stuff like that yeah um so this is tracing my own feminist identity development which is something that I have reflected on quite a bit. But for the first probably 21 years of my life, if anyone called me a feminist, I would have probably laughed at them. I was so far in the other direction uh, from feminism that it that the idea that I would be at the point where I am now is would have been absurd. But I was a member of pro-life groups. I... Um, was in, I wanted to be a nun for many years. I wanted to join the convent. I was very deeply entrenched in that world. But I was also really struggling with an eating disorder. I was really deep in it, um, in all of the ways that a person can be lost in an eating disorder. I was basically the skeleton of a person who had, who was really being led by, by conservative values and, um, kind of blind faith. So I did, I had a friend uh, when I was at Villanova, which is a Catholic university, um, who was an outspoken feminist. And I actually stopped being friends with her for a while because I, I thought that she was nuts. I didn't understand what she was talking about at all. I was forced to take a psych of gender course. And on the first day, um, the professor just asked us, she's like, who in the room identifies as a feminist? And I was like looking around, I was like, who are all, where are all the crazies here? Um, where are all the bra burners in the room? And uh, by the end of that class, I realized that not only was I a feminist, um, once I learned about what it was, and uh, but also that the societal treatment of women and the expectations that I had for myself were contributing in a very, very significant way to my own experience of my eating disorder. Because so much of, there is so much pressure on women to maintain their appearance in a very particular way. And that particular way was quite literally killing me. So, um, you know, I, I read certain books, I went to certain therapies that were feminist oriented and encouraged me to reflect more critically on the societal treatment of women, which then encouraged my own healing from my eating disorder. And now I'm, I'm an advocate for eating disorder recovery. Um, and I attribute feminism to my own health and happiness. And now as I've become more deeply entrenched in it and am so critical of the way that women are treated in society, I recognize so many moments and instances and experiences that I've had in which because I am a woman, I was treated differently and not given the same opportunities, but also times when I've been sexually objectified in a way that made me completely uncomfortable. And clapping back to that is a very empowering thing and encouraging women to do the same is perhaps the most fulfilling thing that I could possibly do. Do you remember the books or authors that sort of most profoundly impacted you on that sort of early part of your journey? 
do I ever? <laughs> yes, my... So interestingly enough, the first book I read about gender and gender roles... I hesitate to say this because he's been... Um, there's some backlash against him. But it was Michael Kimmel's book, Guyland. And it was all about how the male gender role negatively influences men. Uh, it talked about how they, the restriction of their emotionality really um, had such a negative influence on them, how they were told to man up. And um, they were told, you know, don't cry, don't be a sissy. And how it is that not being able to express their emotions was really challenging for them. And that actually got me really interested in the psychology of gender more broadly, but um, the books that have really influenced me and my personal feminist identity, uh, Naomi Wolf's The Beauty Myth, um, Bell Hooks, Feminism is for Everybody, and also Feminist Theory. Um, what are some of the other big ones? Uh, Renee N. Gelm, who I'm not entirely even certain identifies as a feminist, but she has this book, Beauty Sick, um, Sheila Jeffries uh, has some some work. Gosh, I can't even remember the title of the book. But they've all just influenced um, the way that I see the world. Uh, Sandra Barkey uh, on objectification. There's there are so many. It's hard to even like pinpoint. Um, but it's like if you pick a feminist topic, I can tell you a book that has shaped and influenced my uh, understanding of feminism because of it. Um, Jessica Valenti has a lot of really, really good stuff that's really accessible out right now. Andy Zeisler, um, she has a book, We Were Feminists, once that talks all about how feminism is kind of bastardized in modern society and capitalized upon. Um, and then the last one that a lot of people are talking to me about now in these um, in interviews that I'm doing with male feminists is Roxane Gay's Bad Feminist, which came out in 2014. and. Um, it was all about how it is that she identifies as a feminist, however, she needs to sacrifice that in certain situations. And I think it was really relatable to clearly not just women, but also men who, um, who recognize that like it's, it's impossible to be a full-time feminist and it's okay to make concessions. However, at the end of the day, as long as you are, um, as long as you're working toward the goal of gender equality, you're on the right track you can use the word. It might even be a book that you might enjoy. Absolutely. Um, well, that's a fantastic list. Uh, I certainly look forward to sharing those recommendations with people, and, and I hope that um, uh, you know, there'll, there'll be opportunities for people to engage with that sort of genre, that, that um, you know, sort of canon that you're describing. And hopefully lots of people will be, continue to be impacted with them in the same way that you have been. So. Yeah, thanks for going into your story. That was really interesting uh, and, and really, uh, really cool to hear uh, about all that. And I think that's um, so uh, it's, it's I mean, it's just it's it's sort of beautiful when when people are able to translate their life experiences like that to engage with the world around them and really, you know, sort of question what they're seeing and then translate that into um, you know, sort of furthering that line of inquiry as you're doing in your research. Right. You're, you're translating your personal experiences in, into a motivation for um, this sort of deeper intellectual dive and understanding of uh, these problems and phenomena in a really 
uh, impactful and, and useful way. So that's really cool to see. Thanks. I, yeah, I feel so fulfilled by the work that I'm doing. Um, I leap out of bed in the morning and I hop right up back into research because I just love it. I, I really love what I do. And I think it's quite obvious in the way that I talk about it and how, how I communicate about it, really um, how entrenched it is in everything that I do in my life, that this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing and this is where I'm supposed to be and this is how I'm supposed to be studying it. So I, uh, yeah, I love it. Hell yeah. Um, all right, so let's, uh, this has been really fun. Let's uh, wrap it up, I guess. But um, I guess, yeah, to, to go back and sort of circle, circle back to, to gratefulness and supporting one another. Maybe another thing we, we didn't touch on that we should mention is it's important to send one another dog pics. Um, like <laughs> your your brother, uh, I, I think has been has been doing for you. So I think I think we need to maintain as many opportunities as possible to send one another pictures of, of of cats and dogs and whatever animals we can we can come up with at the time. So I will publicly support that. Yeah, I think that's a crucial strategy for um, our social reaction to coronavirus. And, and frankly, not enough people are talking about it. You know what? It's an injustice, really, to the yeah. cute animals who are helping us through this. Yeah. These underserved, underrepresented animals that we really need to see quite a bit more of. Actually, funny Absolutely. enough, just today I, I tried to adopt a cat <laughs> because they're just so cute. And honestly, um, <laughs> anything to get us through these times. Wait, so when you say you tried to adopt a cat, does that mean that you attempted and were unsuccessful in that? Yes, so I have been checking the Humane Society website every single day. Just, yeah. I, I wanna find one that I really love. I don't wanna settle. I want to have that connection with the cat. I wanna go full, I'm, I'm prepared to go full crazy cat lady. I'm fine with that, <laughs> but, I, so I wanted to be sure. But so I was, you know, I mean, talking back to things being challenging. I was in a virtual class this morning when um, the news came out that the border was closed and I lost it. I cried so hard that I actually needed to remove myself from the class. And uh, I cried for several hours after that. But one of, another thing that we had discussed, but a friend reached out to me and she was, she actually mentioned, she was like, you know, Jacqueline, maybe it's just time that you adopt a cat. And so I went back on the website and there was one that had not been there before and her name was Angel of all names. I was like, oh my God, yeah. it's a sign, it's a sign. So I contacted the adoption agency and they told me that someone had just called in, they were gonna be there at 1.30, but if it didn't work out, they'd give me a call. And so they gave me a call after, um, you know, at around two o'clock and they were like, we just wanted to let you know that the cat has been adopted. And I was like, no. Oh, no, that's devastating. Ugh. It was dramatic. Uh, however, it really, it gave me something else to think about with all of the insanity going on. And for yeah. those two hours of drama about cats, it was something else to to get excited about and something else to be disappointed about that wasn't so heavy well uh here's to that i think that's wonderful so thanks for taking the time to talk today jacqueline yeah thank you for giving me the opportunity um i really appreciate what you're doing here and i think that 
we as a community are better because we have opportunities like this.